Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Adam Sturgeon, and I am the uh, founder of SturgeonWellness.com. At Sturgeon Wellness, we provide leadership training to those who are looking to find a leader inside of them. So as of right now, I believe that most of us are sick and tired of the uh, inability to get straight answers from the people who are leading our country, leading our world, you know, leading our departments, leading our agencies, leading our cities. Um, I think that it's a time for us to build out the leadership within each and every one of us to become more transparent and more authentic. And I'm not saying that this is everybody in these positions, but I'm saying that there is a cultural shift here and it's hard for us to trust what is being told to us on a daily basis. And we need to become those people who are willing to step up, take care of one another, and truly take time to hear and listen what the concerns are and let's affect change and start making a difference for those who we work with, those who work around us. And as better officers, um, as people who are in law enforcement or in first responder uh, departments, if we make change within our departments, we are going to affect change in the community. If we take care of with us within, then we will be able to be better without. It's like when, it's like your personal self. You can take care of yourself internally. If you take care of yourself physically, take care of yourself by eating right, then you're going to be uh, able to uh, be healthier outward, be able to be have more energy, more energy. So the same thing goes with agencies, with our cities, with our businesses, with our departments. If we take care of the people that who are working on a daily basis, those who are taking care of the world, we will be able to take care of the community in a better way. And that's my goal. So if you look me up at sturgeonwellness.com, I provide leadership training, a leadership building course, uh, some relationship communication uh, building. And right now, um, for the month of February and the rest of, of January, if you're listening to this episode, you'll get 50% off your first two sessions. Those are the paid sessions. If you sign up for one of the three, the free intro sessions during the month of February 2022, that is, you will get two free, sorry, two 50% off sessions um, going forward. Okay, so you sign up for a free session. Let's find out what your goals are. Let's see if we uh, can make a change together. If it's something that fits your needs, then let's get two sessions on board and uh, you get 50% off those first two sessions. Uh, find, like I said, sturgeonwellness.com. Let's click on the link right in the beginning. Um, secondly, this episode is going to be broken up into two parts. The first part, this is going to be with my uh, new friend, Phil Gonchak. He's the chief of police in Seal Beach. Phil has been making strives at officer wellness and taking care of the people that he works with. I think he's really had this mental uh, ability to take care of those people since the beginning. Uh, it looks like it at an early age, he really understood that he needs to take care of those who are around him. Phil overcame a lot. He has a rich history, a lot of uh, ups and downs. He's made his own mistakes and he, he acknowledges those, but he also is building on them. And in his resiliency, the things that he's had to overcome, he is building a better agency um, and he's really being a leader in Southern California. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Like I said, check me out here at Let's Grab a Cup, uh, at AP underscore Sturgeon. You can email me at sturgeonwellness at gmail.com, or you can find me at sturgeonwellness.com. Hope you guys have a great day and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Let's Grab a Cup Podcast, this is where we talk about leadership, authenticity, resiliency, and we provide a place to hold space for one another. I'm your host, Adam Sturgeon, 
So why don't you grab a cup of coffee or tea or whatever suits you at this moment. Let's dive in. All right, welcome to Let's Grab a Cup podcast. I am Adam Sturgeon, your host. And today we're going to be talking to Phil Gonchak from the Seal Beach Police Department. He's the chief of police in Seal Beach, California, which is in Southern California. Phil started his career in Tempe, Arizona in 2000 and then transferred over to Seal Beach as a lateral in 2007. And he worked through his way through the ranks, through corporal, sergeant, as a commander, and even as the commander of the West County SWAT team um, before he became chief of police. So uh, welcome, Phil. Appreciate you coming on. What's up, brother? Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. I, like uh, one of the things I was really excited to have you on, A, when we first met, like just how down to earth you were and um, when you told me, hey, call you Phil. So I appreciate that. I don't know if that's just a, a you thing, if that's a Seal Beach thing or when you started that, but I, I like, I, I think that personal, like personal ability to be like one-on-one with you, you know, just kind of as peers versus as chief and, you know, sergeant from an agency. No, I appreciate it, man. There's a, um... There's, it, it's bad enough with what, all the stuff we have to deal with every day when we put this uniform on and, and, and we'll get to this later. Hopefully is I don't, um, when I'm talking to other police officers, we are all in this together. You know, the last thing I need for you to do, unless obviously we're in a, in a setting where it's formal or you're in front of my city manager, you know, my name is Phil with you. I'm just, I'm just another cop. Uh, and more importantly, just another human being or, you know, like you, a father, a husband, and um, that's important for, for a lot of different reasons. But, uh, you know, you're a cop at a local agency around here, and, and more importantly, uh, you're a good person. So that's kind of the, the reason why I go by Phil um, with all of you. Yeah, I appreciate it. I noticed on um, on one of the articles you wrote, you even signed it to your to your community. You signed it, like you're, you signed it Phil. You didn't sign it you know, chief or anything like that. And I thought that was very interesting. I don't know if it's just, like I said, I don't know if it's something you've learned along the way or if it's something that you just decided to do. You know, I don't know. I just, like you said, I don't, I, I never really thought about it that way. I guess um, we're all trying to be relatable, you know, and, and, and it's tough right now with a number of different things that are going on um, at the state level We're we're constantly getting told what the new laws are going to be. Uh, we're constantly getting told uh, what we're going to do, how we're going to change things. The profession itself is changed tenfold in the last two years. I mean, I've been doing this 22 years now. And in the last two years, I've seen more changes than the prior 20 years before that. And and I was just talking to my retired uh, chief uh, last week about, you know, how it's different. And, you know, the challenges he faced before me were, were the easy ones, I call them, because, we knew how to do police work. At least we thought we did, right? And then uh, police reform, COVID, you name it, came into the picture. And then uh, we had to start changing everything from the way we treat each other, um, the way we talk to people, and then obviously the way we look at a different set of uh, policing skills, particularly de-escalation and things of that nature. So it's been... um, it's been a wild ride. And one of the things that helps us specifically in seal beach is trying to make us more personal, which I think you were going to talk a little bit about into our uh, Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Uh, and, and that is, I think what's most important for us right now is instead of trying to be formal and we are the cops and, you know, we, uh, we're, we're nothing but police officers. It's just different. We're, we're, we're more than just police officers. We always have been by the way, 
I think it's just different now. Um, it's just different. And the way we portray ourselves has to be different. And the way we do our work has to be different. Um, and the way we think has to be different. And, and that starts at the top, starting with me. So. And how long have you been chief now? Uh, over Just over two years. So uh, December 1st, 2019, I took over for Seal Beach. So you took over basically right before COVID hit. So your entire career, or sorry, entire time as chief has been dealing with this, with the, all of the COVID issues and civil unrest. Yeah. So I, right before that I spent, um, let's see, 2015, I'd spent the first, uh, 2015 to 2019. So almost five years at the, uh, commander rank. I was, uh, in charge of operations for that whole time. And then December 1st, 2019, I got promoted to chief. Uh, thanks to my boss. So I got to give her a shout out, Jill Ingram. She's been a phenomenal mentor and a leader for me to, uh, kind of walk in her shadows and, um, handle the police department. Um, but you know, we, we had dealt with, um, aside from those two things, we had dealt with, we had gotten a malware attack on our city. And so our whole infrastructure, everything, um, computers, internet, email had gotten locked up for almost 60 days, right when, uh, about three weeks after I got promoted. So I think it was Christmas Eve, actually 2019, our entire city got locked down with malware. So it was that. And then COVID in uh, February, March of 2020. And then uh, the George Floyd riots in the end of May. And, uh, you know, a couple of demonstrations and protests in our town, uh, believe it or not. And then, uh, you know, trying to clean up what's left of all the drama after the uh, insurrection and, and all that jazz for the police department. So it's been a wild ride. Um, yeah, it sounds like it. It's, it's been a different, like I said, it's been, it's been totally different than, than what I thought I was going to be dealing with. You know, you, you think, oh, the chief's going to have it easy because as long as he's got good people working for him, life is, uh, life is glorious. But, man, it's been, it's been tough. Uh, I have phenomenal people that work for me. My executive command staff does a great job, and, and they kill it out there. Two lieutenants, two captains that do a great amount of work. Uh, my management team, so all corporals and above, do a good job in their leadership skills. And then, you know, I try to give the shout out to the most important people. And those are our patrol cops, uh, the detectives and our professional staff, you know, parking records and jail. I think those guys are really, as long as they're doing a great job, then, you know, we all look good. So I, I try to take care of them the most and make them successful in their ways and whatever they desire to be someday. But we've got really good people here in the city of Seal Beach, not just the police department, but like I said, at city hall, my council members, my mayor, everybody's, on board and willing to help us out in the city. So we got a good thing going here. I know people laugh when they, they ask me how things are in Seal Beach and I say it's rainbows and unicorns, but man, I'm telling you, we got a good thing going here. And I, I feel bad talking about how good it is because there's some agencies really struggling out there uh, with recruitment or morale or you name it. And I'm always, you know, trying to throw myself out there uh, and, and helping out the best I can. Cause I don't, I don't know if I'm doing it right or I just got lucky, but either way it's working and, I, and I'm willing to, to jump in and, and accept responsibility for all of our good, but uh, more importantly, all of our bad, if it does come our way. Well, it seems like you have a good relationship, like you said, with the, the city council and the city manager and stuff. And then that, and going on to not even that, but your patrolmen and, and the people who work for you. But if you have this type of relationship where you're open and able to like just be Phil and come talk to me if you need help or need anything, I think that's probably goes a long way with your, with your people. I mean, I, I think that's a big deal. We're trying, man. I think, um, you know, I, I say this a lot to all of our guys and gals out there is, 
if I'm not available 24 seven, who is, you know? And so my phone is always on me. I sleep with it right next to me. Uh, my command staff gets a little pissed at me because, you know, I'll take a phone call from a police officer who's having a tough day or is irritated with something. And, you know, granted, I try to stay out of the middle, uh, drama of it and try to redirect him or her into what the focus is um, because I do want to respect my chain of command. You know, I, I kind of, that's the one thing that, that even my prior chief had trouble with admittedly. And, and I'm finding the same thing with small organizations. I mean, some of my best friends are, are police officers here, you know? And so how do I balance them, you know, griping or complaining about their Sergeant or Lieutenant or captain and then, you know, not try to help them along the way without getting in the way, you know. So it's tough, but, you know, with a smaller organization, I think that that's kind of what builds our character and, and our culture here. And then, uh, you know, it's funny, we did another uh, kind of like analysis. Uh, we asked our cops, like, hey, what do you think would um, we can improve on? And, and some of the things, you know, we did that was, you know, you, you leave things alone, culture is great, to um, the culture is too relaxed here, we need to tighten things up. And so it's almost like this pendulum that we deal with here, you know, and we tighten, tighten the screws a little bit because, you know, I, I can't stand the way those um, outer vest carriers look lately. They just look like dog crap, to be honest with you. You know, they're faded and people hang, you know, you name it, hobbles, whatever. We had a guy who was putting a taser just in his pocket. It's like, what is going on here? You know, we're not, we're not wearing those because, you know, they're, they're easier to carry your equipment. on. We're, we're wearing those because they're supposedly, able to help your back and I can't stand it. But anyway, so like when I start putting the screws on them for little stuff like that, now, you know, we're the bad guys versus, you know, if we go the other way where it's like, well, laissez-faire, we're more worried about the pandemic and nothing else. Um, then people say, Oh, it's too, you know, nobody cares about us around here. So it's trying to find that balance right in between that pendulum where it settles to, to get the sweet spot. And that makes it difficult, but we're trying. Yeah. Is it one of those things like for like the, like the vest you're talking about, is it one of those things where, if since you don't like them, is it automatically like we're not doing it, or is it one oh, of those things? Do you get like uh, opinions, or how does that work? It's almost like a joke. I mean, I think every guy and gal that wears that uh, wears that vest intentionally tries to wear it crappy in front of me, you know, just because they might hate it. But no, I mean, my opinion counts, of course. And and if I were to ever just walk in and make an edict one day and say, you know, off with the vest, then I think uh, nobody would be surprised. But I would never do that. I think. Um, there's a couple different things that we do as it relates to uh, tightening the screws. And one of those things that I, th- I think I told you this when we were talking earlier this week about uh, the relationship with our union or our association. So I meet with our executive staff uh, members and uh, police management association board members and police officer association board members once a month. It's the first Wednesday of every month we sit down and, you know, we, we jaw-jack for 20 minutes, and then we talk a, about business for about 10, and then we jaw-jack for about another 20 minutes. You know, and most of that is just having that communication, that open line of face-to-face conversation. We don't do Zoom. We don't do uh, telephonic. I think we've had to do Zoom once because of the COVID jazz, um, but we try to avoid it, you know, do the whole six feet apart, wearing a mask mm-hmm. in a big room with doors open, because that face-to-face communication is so valuable. Um, which has been missing for the last couple of years for a number of different organizations and meetings, but it's so critical and so valuable with our association. So to be honest, I'll never get rid of the vests. Um, I shouldn't say never, who knows, but tomorrow, tomorrow you come in and take them <laughs> yeah, you know, off of the vests. No, I think, you know, they serve a critical function and the guys and gals like them. I mean, you, there's very few of us left that, that don't wear them. 
uh, and would prefer a class B uh, uniform. You know? And it's tough. It, it, I think you wear one, don't you? Don't you wear a class B uniform? Yeah. Yeah. I don't wear, yeah. I don't wear a vest. I mean, they, they start, they're starting like a pilot program at our department with the vest. And I think some people are trying them. I, I I'm, I've never tried it. Like I've never worn one, so I really don't know. I can't talk about personal experience, but I mean, they, some of the people like it, so we'll see what happens. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see what your, uh, what your team say or don't say about it. Cause our teams love them, but they look like dog. Doo-doo, you know? Yeah. I guess, I mean, I could see the, I could definitely see how it could go that way if you don't take care of it and don't take care of your equipment for sure. I shouldn't say all of them. There's a couple guys and gals that do a really good job of taking care of them. And those are the ones that I constantly, Say hey, get your stuff together. Look at that guy, or look at that gal, because for the most part they're tough. But no, I think you know. What I was telling you, as most important, I never make an edict just because I don't like something. It's it's a, it's a lot more than that. Yeah, I think we like said like it all goes back to that personal relationship, like you said with the union. Like you, I think I'm sure you guys get a lot of stuff done in the meeting, but I guarantee you they care more about the beginning and the end part when you guys are just messing around talking and not the actual meeting part. That's just the business, but the the part is the relationship part with people. I think that's really important that you're doing that. Thanks, man. Um, so this is fun. I know we're going to talk about police stuff, but people want to know more about, about who you are and like where you came from. I'd love to hear about, I know we kind of talked about it, but um, how you started, like kind of like your upbringing and how you got into police work, you know, what, what drew you to that profession? Yeah. So I, you know, there's um, a couple different reasons why it happened. There was not like, you know, like you, I didn't wake up in the, in the wee hours of my three, four year old stage and say, I want to be a cop someday. I really didn't. I was, I was an average high school student. Um, you know, I went through some trouble sometimes like eighth grade, freshman year, smoked a lot of pot. Um, you know, I openly admit that, that, you know, there's some, some difficult times in my life. My mom died when I was seven. You know, this is like my sob story. So feel free to start tearing up if you want Adam. Yeah. Uh, but no, my mom, my mom died when I was seven. Um, went in and out of a couple different um, houses and apartments while my dad figured out uh, what he was going to do. I was sexually uh, molested uh, at, at my close to teenage years, 10, 11 years old. Uh, nobody really knows that. In fact, it's probably the first time I've ever publicly said it. Um, anyway, it's, it's kind of helping me develop into who I am today and talking about those things and, and starting to make me realize the decisions that I make and why I have, um, come to be a, at least what I think is being resilient uh, as a result of that experience. But then uh, at, at 17, I was driving down the road with a couple of friends of mine and again in Phoenix, Arizona and had a transient ride his bike out in front of me and kill himself, uh, hit him at like Jeez. 50 miles an hour. Yeah. Um, you were yeah, driving so, or your friend was driving? No, I was driving. So, oh, you wow. know, here I'm brand new, full of piss and vinegar at 16, 17 years old. And I, I basically already experienced my first uh, deadly encounter. You know, I'd never seen a dead body before other than uh, my mom and stuff like that. So, you know, just a lot of different things happened in my life. I got uh, a girlfriend of mine that I only dated for a couple of weeks pregnant. Um, so I, I had to like grow up really quickly um, in my life. And um, so, yeah, a lot of different things started happening really bad as far as tragedies. And so, when I got that, that gal pregnant with my first daughter, Kayla, um, I was already registered to go into, or not registered, but listed, enlisted to go into the Coast Guard. Kind of just because, like, I had gone through college. Like, I, 
I watched that. Um, well, I, I should say I watched it. Like, uh, I'll give you a long story short, but my junior year, uh, a buddy of mine's brother went to the University of Notre Dame, and he was wrestling there, and, and I was wrestling at the time. It wasn't good at all, but, you know, I thought, like, it would be fun to wrestle in college. And so we went out to go visit him at the University of Notre Dame. Man, we had a blast, you know, like, here I am, this 17-year-old kid. I'd just been in a serious traffic accident. Um, a buddy of mine's brother is living the life at the University of Notre Dame, and I like, I want to do that, you know. But it was, like, too little too late because I was 17 years old. I was just a C average student. I started smoking my grades my junior year and senior year. Uh, but, again, it was, it was too little too late. I bombed my ACTs and SATs. And so while we were out there, he said, hey, you should go uh, across the street and check out this school called Holy Cross. And so I went to uh, across the street. Literally, it's like a highway, like in South Bend, Indiana. There's a highway. And then to the east of the highway is the University of Notre Dame. It's like, I don't know if you've ever been to the University of Notre Dame or seen no, on TV. Yeah, it's, it's 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 enormous and it's beautiful and you know here's this poor Jewish kid from South Phoenix looking at it going oh god this is like this ominous Catholic school uh, and I'm like I want to go there you know and then to the left of the road to the west side of the street literally is this little small mom and pop college called Holy Cross College it's like 800 students and what he said was like hey there's a number of kids that you know are trying to get on the wrestling team or football team or whatever but they didn't meet the grades because Notre Dame back then, even still, you know, has such a huge um, expectations for grades um, so that they were sending a lot of these, these students over there. So I went over to Holy Cross. I checked out. I was like, oh, this is cool. It's a little small school. I'd, you know, I'd gotten into NAU, Northern Arizona University, and, and Arizona State University, and I was really interested in U of A, but I didn't get in there. And so I was like, well, let's just pack up and see what happens. So my senior year, uh, I applied to Notre Dame, didn't get in, obviously. I applied to Holy Cross. They accepted me. So my dad was like, let's go. And my stepmom at the time, she was all in. You know, she was a big fan of, of all that whole story. And then the movie Rudy came out. I was just going to say, so, this sounds like the movie Rudy. Yeah, dude. Isn't so it had, exactly the same two schools? I had, Yeah, it's the exact same yeah. schools. So I had the pre-Rudy uh, life before Rudy was Rudy. I was going to say, so, did you play football too? Oh, no, no, I was, I was, a, I was a little peanut, man. I was like five. That was another thing to talk about life is I was five foot four, hundred pounds soaking wet. I wrestled, uh, 98 pounds, um, all the way up until my junior year. I think I finally got up to like 152. I wrestled, but it was wild, man. So then I went to, to Holy Cross and the cool about Holy Cross is it's like their little brother school or sister school, whatever you want to call it, but you could enjoy all the same benefits at Notre Dame back then. I don't know what it's like now, but we could eat on Notre Dame campus. We could play in all of their intramural sports. So I started playing rugby uh, for the University of Notre Dame as a student for Holy Cross. So it was, it was really badass, man. Like there were a lot of cool people that I got to meet. But anyway, long story short is um, we had gone, you know, I'd gone through college. I'd done all this stuff. And then I went to, uh, I, I was there at Holy Cross. I got straight A's the whole semester, both semesters. And, but it was so cold, man. It was so cold. Like, there were days, and from Phoenix, you know, you're dealing with 122-degree weather, and in the Midwest, man, it was freezing. I mean, there were days where you'd wake up, and you're like, nope, ain't going outside. Like, the snow is up to your eyebrows of the front door. And they had to, uh, I remember my, my stepmom, she had to, she had to mail me, you know, this was before, like, FedEx overnight. She had to mail me, like, snail mail a key lock de-icer for your car. Like, I don't know if you know what that is, but Eddie no. Bauer, do you remember that, sh- that store Eddie Bauer back in the day? Yeah. Okay. So they made like all these really cool camping gear items and 
uh, I wonder what happened to that story. Anyway, so uh, she mails me this. this Someone's going to send you now. Someone's going to start sending you Eddie Bauer stuff now. Oh, man, dude, send it to me. I used to love that place. Anyway, she sent me this Lockby Icer thing, and my dad bought me this 84 Honda Civic piece of shit car. I mean, it was terrible. It was really bad. Uh, anyway, the, the door would lock all the time, and so I stick this little door lock thing in there and, and de-ice the door lock. And uh, that's how bad it was. And I'm like, I, my dad was like, it's really expensive. Uh, University of Notre Dame at that time, I want to say it was like 30 or 40 grand. It's 72,000, by the way. Oh, geez. Which, uh, yeah, 72,000 a year now. I was looking at her for my daughter. But anyway, long story short is uh, he, he kind of bribed me to move back home. I reapplied to U of A. I got into U of A. And he says, hey, I'll buy you a brand new Honda Civic. This is 1994. If you drive back home and go to the University of Arizona, because it's like half the cost. I'm like, I'm in. So they go to the U of A. Uh, my cousin was in a fraternity Kappa Alpha order. And uh, he's like, you, you're you in. If you really want to do this, come on down to the University of Arizona. I'll let you be a legacy uh, brother of mine. And you can rush, you know, all these different fraternities. But, you know, Kappa Alpha is where it's at. And so I joined this fraternity Kappa Alpha. And, man, it was a mess. It was a total mess. No offense against the, the Kappa Alpha order and that organization, but like it's just the stuff that you, you would think you're, you would never want your kids to do, you know, like eating yeah. dog food and Are you uh, serious? yeah. And like sitting in, um, sitting in the dark with the, the sounds of animals in the background playing like just, just silly, stupid stuff. But you know, we were kids it was super young kids at the time. And it was tough. It was tough. It was, it was a tough run there and, and we drank a lot. I mean, that was pretty much the game you drank all year. And so basically I failed out. I failed out of the university of Arizona, packed my stuff back up, went to um, Phoenix. And then my dad bought a house, actually my grandfather's house. He bought my grandfather's house after he passed and me and a bunch of my buddies lived there and just became boozers. I mean, we partied for basically two, three years of my life from 19 to 21. And I woke up one day and was like, wow, I got to do something, you know, like this is, I'm getting older here. I got this this gal pregnant. What am I supposed to do here? Um, Wait, how old were you when you um, got was, her pregnant? I was 21. And so I was oh, like, that I gotta, age. Okay. Yeah. And so I, th- I thought to myself, I gotta do something. You know, I think I was waiting tables at the time at Chili's, <laughs> you know, it's like, what am I, I'm, what am I doing? You know, and my friends are all getting stoned in the backyard and we're drinking booze all day. And by the way, I hadn't smoked weed until I was uh, the last time. I think I was 18. For those of you who are looking at my background, <laughs> checking and cross verify. But no, like, so it doesn't disqualify you from being really, a Seal Beach police officer. Totally not from back then, you know, right. being, being stupid. But at any rate, um, I woke up and I'm like, you know what? It would be really cool to jump out of some helicopters and save some lives. And so I looked at the Coast Guard, I looked at the Army, the Marines, all this other kind of jazz. My dad was livid, and he was so mad. Um, but you know, it's interesting. My dad uh, started being more of a friend of mine, um, really young in my life. Like, and, and I hope he doesn't take offense if he watches this. But you know, it's not that he wasn't my dad. He was just more of a friend. You know, it was kind of like me and my older brother, who's um, four years older than me, and him. And um, after my mom died, so we really just kind of grew each up. And my dad was super young too. He was only so my dad was born fifty four, so he's only like what 22 years older than me so we just started becoming friends at a super young age and yes he's my dad and and he gets that title and he's earned that title because he loves me like a father because he is my father but um we became friends anyway so 
long story short, he was, he was livid that I was going to join the Marines or the army or whatever it was. And he's like, okay, Coast Guard's cool. So he gave me the ominous dominus and said, go ahead and do the Coast Guard. So I signed up, registered, ready to go. And I think I told you the story the other day. I was laying on the couch after I was dating this gal for a couple of weeks and we'd broken up. Like it was really weird. And anyway, I'll, another day for another story when I'm not in uniform, but like I was literally sleeping on the couch and I got this phone call. Or I'm sorry. I was sleeping on the couch in this house that my dad owned, that my grandpa owned before me. And I fell asleep literally midday, like three o'clock taking a nap. And I had dreamt that the phone rang and it was this girl telling me that she was pregnant. And I'm like, yeah, right. Whatever with whose baby, whatever. And then boom, I was, I was awoke literally out of this dream by a phone call. And it was that girl telling me she was pregnant. It was the wildest. Like, I'm not a big like spiritual guy. There's not going to be a bunch of ghosts or apocalypse of zombies or anything crazy like that. Like I'm, I'm pretty idealistic and, and like to think that things in front of me are what they are in front of me. And, Anyway, so that freaked me out, and sure enough, man, she was pregnant. And then uh, Your premonition it, is that what it is? I don't know. It was crazy, bro. And then um, so I feel like I'm going on and on with this. But uh, long story no, short is, you know, I had to get my stuff together. So I was three weeks out from shipping to uh, I forget the name of the city in New Jersey to start Coast Guard um, boot camp. And I was like, I got to have a kid. I got to take responsibility. So I pick up the Coast Guard phone. And I say, Hey, I can't. I'm done. I can't leave my child like this. So <clears throat> they were totally cool. They were like, okay, do your thing. We'll unwind everything. We'll unpack everything. I mean, I, I was literally ready to go. The medical was done, all that jazz. And so then uh, after probably a couple of years of trying to figure out, I went into the mortgage business. That was a mess. Um, and my, my daughter was two at the time. I thought, you know what? My uh, dad was a cop for a couple of years. My uncle was currently a sergeant at Tempe police department in a little city outside of Phoenix. Um, maybe I'll check that out. I was literally at his house, my uncle's house, and I was looking at his wall of, of uh, awards and pictures and stuff, and I was like, eh, let's see what happens. So I threw my hat in the ring, man, and I tested for Phoenix, Gilbert, uh, Glendale, LAPD, believe it or not, Orange County Sheriffs, and Tempe. And Tempe was the quickest, and, and I think obviously a lot of that had to do with my uncle. Um, not a... a afraid to say it he obviously helped me out get the job and and dude it's been a success route ever since but that's how it all started for a long-winded probably 20 minute answer hey don't worry hey don't worry about it and we have all the time i know you have meetings but i don't (laughs) no no i'm good i'm good till like two o'clock man so we got an hour and a half so um that's a that's a crazy story like a lot of stuff happened to you in your younger years and you made a comment saying that this is the first time you think publicly you've brought up the fact that you were abused as a child um, or a teenager. And I don't know if this is something you want to go into, but if there's sign, if there's something that you could maybe for those, because you, you're not the only one, obviously, that have to deal with that. And yeah. people who have either gone through something similar that may be signs that you could look out for or that you that think something happened to you or now that yeah. you're a dad that you've looked out for as a father. For sure. So, you know, it's, first of all, I want to give you props. I think, you know, we're talking about a lot of different kinds of things. Um, and I just talked about a ton of stuff in 20 minutes to unpack, but I'll tell you the things that you're doing right now, Adam are so phenomenal. So we have, you know, we have peer support. We have a lot of different things in our organizations that have, you know, over the last 15 years that have done uh, boundless and endless amount of work for um, wellness, right? But what I think you have at, at Let's Grab a Cup is truly more of a genuine approach as it relates to police officer to police officer. 
And, you know, you, you, what I liked about you the most was you hit me up and we were just like old friends catching up at, you know, the, the uniform store for crying out loud. Yeah. That's where you and I met. And so um, there's a genuineness about you. And like you said, is that there's, um, it's kind of cool about you, Adam, is that you have some innate ability for people to just tell you stuff, right? Like you said, that's me. Like, I don't know why, but people just tell me stuff. So um, I have no idea why. Maybe that's what it is, man. I felt like this, you know, the, the, the stars were aligning. I'm like, I got to tell this guy that I was sexual molested. No, but <laughs> that's, you know, to, okay. to answer your question, you know, um, I think it, it, if I can give a shout out to my wife, she is like the most phenomenal person. Uh, her name's Stephanie and, and she's, she's just the coolest woman in the world and she just happens to be hot. And um, I love it. She's funny. Dude. It, it, so she just happens to be hot and funny and it's truly like the coolest woman in the world, but more importantly, she's a badass mom and um, dedicates her life to it. But she's helped me, you know, we talk about all these things like we were talking about with wellness and peer support and, um, you know, Orange County does a really good job at peer support. We have a, a whole network with a company called TCTI and, and, you know, police psychologists and there's all this other great stuff out there. But to be honest with you, I have a phenomenal wife and she literally helps me get through a lot of different things. And so she's, you know, probably like the first year or two, she never knew that about me. I kept it. I mean, I literally kept it under lock and key. I never talked about it and I'll never say who the person was. That's just my own thing. I will talk about what happened um, mentally, but I'll never talk about what actually happened to me physically. I'm just not there yet. And uh, I don't really care at this point in my life. It's, it's so, yes, it's important to talk about because I want others to feel free to talk about, but it's not, it didn't shape me. And I think if, if there's one thing I could tell everybody out there is um, my mom dying didn't shape me. Me getting sexually molested didn't shape me. Me getting in a fatal traffic accident when I was 17 didn't shape me. This career, um, this job shaped me, uh, sadly. you know. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later, I think. Um, but I'll tell you, um, I keep saying I'll tell you. <laughs> being sexually molested brings out a lot of different anxieties when you think about it. Right. And when I say think about it, like you really sitting here playing over these emotions or, or playing over the times that happened thinking, why didn't I just like get up and take care of business myself? And then I thought, Oh, I was a little weak kid, you know, and why didn't I say anything? Well, I don't know. It just, it didn't feel right. But you know, I started having these dreams when I got older, like, that really happened, man. That was wild. Like, why, why did that happen to me? And so I think that there's all these little questions that surround it, but what's most important is that you acknowledge them, you talk about them, um, and you relate to them, you know, and you try to help other people out. I, I, I don't look at myself becoming a police officer because it's like, Oh, I want to help people. Um, granted. Yeah. We clearly want to help people as cops, but I didn't go into this job thinking that, you know, like I, I think I told you before I went into this job for three reasons. One or actually four. One, I needed a job. Two, I wanted to drive cars really fast. Uh, three, I wanted to shoot guns. And four, I wanted to take criminals off the streets. I mean, I, there's nothing more. The good thing about being a cop, and I think most of us can agree with this, there's nothing more exhilarating, nothing, than arresting a bad guy. Like, you know? like Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to write a ticket for somebody who's got no license, right? Yes, technically that's an arrest. But I'm talking about, like, you know, the bank robbers or, you know, the rapists or the child molesters, right? Um, there's nothing greater than that feeling. And so to relate back to the fact that I was um, sexually molested when I was younger, 
and having the ability to talk about it and I guess emote or empathize with some of these victims that we deal with now. I think that that's what helps me with all of that. And so resiliency is huge. I talk about it an enormous amount with my children. Um, I have three daughters, by the way, with uh, two with my, my current wife, Stephanie, that um, we'll get into a little bit more, maybe another episode. But uh, Yeah, we might have to make a few episodes. Yeah. Uh, rich history here. Episodes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think that that's, that's kind of how um, that's how that unrolled or how that unraveled and how it helped me. You know, it didn't, it didn't make me um, into who I am today, but it definitely helped how I treat people and how I look at things differently in life. And it's not this, it's not as glorious or as rosy of a picture um, as people hope it is out there in the real world. It's dark and um, scary. And I wish I had really good things to say for our children, but I don't. Um, I'll tell them, you know, the police do, police do a really good job of taking care of those things that most people are afraid to take care of. You know, and I yeah. think I think that's important. I think people need to know that the reason cops laugh at the dirtiest, dumbest, uh, silliest, darkest things is because that makes us deal with the reality of there's some really dumb, dark, stupid things we have to deal with every day that we try to protect um, the the average citizen that doesn't have to deal with them, so that they can have a normal life and expect the glorious things and 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 make things better for their children, but. Yeah, it's crazy. The joke. I mean, we. I mean, just the other day, we see like fatality, and it's like I know it sounds bad, but like the the jokes that we just the things just come out of your mouth, like with each other in the station that we go back and forth on, just to like. I think it's a stress relief, really, and you just you're. It's just a different. You would never say it. It's not like you. It's not like you believe anything. Like you want anything anybody to get hurt or anything, but it's like these things that happen, you see them, they, it, it already happened and make someone makes a comment. It's like a, like a joke about something. And it's like just the way we relieve stress. Yeah. It's, um, it's different. It's different. Yeah, definitely different. It's different mindsets. And I think that a lot of people like either police work or military deal with a lot of the same type of, uh, I would say dark humor in that way. Uh, For one sure. thing, one thing you said, uh, was that at what age? I'm curious. What age did, was this that you realized when you started like thinking about the incident that happened or incidents that happened? And uh, like, what age was that when you said your wife helped you that you started? You kind of started thinking about it and realizing this is a real thing that happened to you. So it began when I was ten, ten years old, and it stopped when I was um, it stopped when I was thirteen because I literally just got away from. It. I got away from the problem. I ran away um, from the problem entirely. By legitimately just flat out like moving away from everything, um, and that's like I said, another day for another story. But I think when it really started to to feather back into my brain, man, it was probably like ten years ago, fifteen years ago. Oh wow! And I thought, you know, like what, I never, I never realized why I didn't think about it until I started realizing why I didn't think about it. You know, I think the other thing that's, um, you know, and this, like I said, 15 years ago, so I had already been a cop for like five years. So in 2005, uh, I was involved in a shooting. I think I told you a little bit about this on a SWAT call. Um, oh, sorry. I'm tapping my pen. <laughs> you sent me a little text. So I, says, I can hear your mouse clicking, bro. No, I, I don't want to interrupt you talking. Uh, I'm tapping my pen. So please don't think I'm typing or anything. No, I, um, in 2005, we're on a, a SWAT warrant, or not a SWAT warrant, but on a SWAT call. 
and I was brand new on the SWAT team in Tempe. I was like a year on all of one year. And man, I was just like the light guy, like go move the, the headlights and the, the porch lights and help our sniper team, our entry team grab equipment. I mean, I was brand new, like the baby guy on the SWAT team. And uh, we get a call of a uh, child porn collector in um, South Tempe. And, you know, and, and like you, it was like one of those calls you just get excited about. You're like, okay, yeah, I'm going to go to a child porn collector guy and we're going to take this piece of, you know what, off the streets finally, yeah. right? So I was in um, an undercover narcotics unit back then called the SCB, the, the Selective Enforcement Bureau for the city of Tempe. And it was a really cool assignment. I had a really cool partner. His name was Mike Dobson. I uh, learned a lot from that guy. And he was kind of just like this this role model. He was like the god of narcs, you know, and I just happened to be uh, the one guy that got selected to be his partner. And, and there was, I think, four or five of us at the time um, that were really a, a lot of invested time in narcotics. And um, anyway, it was cool. It was cool. Yeah, you undercover. So you were full beard, gauged earrings, you know, and you. Uh, I was surprised by that gauged earrings thing. Yeah, believe it or not, they're still, uh, they're still stretched out a little bit. I put a pencil through them, but yeah, it's wild. So, you know, I think it was 2000, yeah, it was 2005, June 9, 2005. And we get the call and, and this is back when we had beepers and, you know, it's like uh, barricaded subject uh, respond. Um, I forget the address now, but basically this, this apartment complex in South Tempe, a child porn collector who uh, brandished a firearm and officers knocking on the front door. And so long story short is the, the patrol uh, got a call from a guy saying he was suicidal and uh, he knew he had a warrant out from, I don't know if it was uh, DHS or customs and border patrol or something like that, some federal agency and, so instead of uh, surrendering himself or turning himself in, he wanted to kill himself. So, you know, back in the day, uh, a lot of things different now when we deal with people that are uh, suicidal. But back in the day, you'd go knock on the door and they don't answer and they tell you to F off. And, you know, they have a gun. You're kicking the door down in there and going to take care of business. And similar back then, there was like this change of philosophy on how we're going to deal with this. So whoever was the patrol guys that went up, you know, they did a perimeter around his apartment, his second floor story knock on the door and the guy tells them to piss off and they keep knocking. And finally the guy uh, reaches out with a handgun and points out and tells him get the, you know, get the F out of here. And so they back out and they call SWAT. And like I told you, I was brand new on the team. So I'm always like the first guy there, right? I'm probably going 85, 90 miles an hour from, I lived in Queen Creek, Arizona at the time. So it was like a 40 minute drive, but I think I got there in record time and met my partner, Mike Dobson. He was on the entry team. And anyway, so I don't know how it happened, but I was sitting at the command post and uh, they're like, Hey, Phil, go. Um, I don't know if it was bring the, the small shield, you know, back then we had like a, a plethora of shields, you know, there was one like the little, little baby ones that were brand new that were becoming tactical shields, you know, they're everywhere now, but back yeah. then those were like, you know, basically really super lightweight uh, ballistic shields. Hey, go, go drag this up to uh, the second floor entry team guys. I'm like, okay, cool. So I drag it up there and, and, and there's this, you know, the godliest of cop SWAT guys in this room, you know, Mike Dobson, another guy named Kevin Butcher, who's a phenomenal SWAT tactician. Um, anyway, a, a bunch of other just phenomenal guys. And um, anyway, I just happened to be in this room, like, stay here, bro. And I'm like, okay. Like, yeah, <laughs> I don't know if I just happened to be the lucky guy to stay there, but I was pumped man with all these guys and another guy named Chuck Bridges. And, um, he was like the, the bomb technician and uh, another guy named Chuck, who was another bomb technician. And, and long story short is, you know, there's this, there's this child porn collector guy 
who's in this apartment um, and he's refusing to come out and we had thrown uh, the throw phone up there with a bunch of uh, video cameras in there. And remind me to show you someday. I got the video from oh, that yeah. throw phone. Absolutely. And, um, anyway, we get the throw phone up there up off the balcony and every time he picks up the throw phone, he, he, he puts down the gun, picks up the throw phone, talks on the throw phone, smokes a cigarette out of the balcony and then uh, puts the throw phone down, keeps the gun down on the ground and then runs off to, uh, the refrigerator into his kitchen and he opens up the refrigerator and he keeps like drinking out of a, a gallon of milk or a gallon of water. So we can't tell, but when he goes there, it looks like from what you and I are seeing, like you see this door behind me, it looks like it's probably what 15 feet. It's actually like seven feet behind me. So imagine that on a throw phone camera. It, we thought it was like 25 feet from the throw phone to the refrigerator. Anyway, so every time that happens, he puts his gun down, and we can see the, the light from the refrigerator open because it's pitch black inside of his apartment. He kept it black, blacked out or we turned off the electricity or whatever. So we knew every time that he went to the fridge, we saw the light open that he left his gun down on the ground. So right. the uh, commander at the time, um, awesome guy named Angel Carbajal, uh, who just retired from Tempe. Anyway, he says, uh, when that happens, we're going to line up and you guys are going to blow the door and charge in and take care of this business. And so <clears throat> I think the guy fired off a couple rounds um, at one of our snipers. And so we're like, we're done. Let's go. So we suit up and I just happened to be that same lucky brand new guy that grabbed that little shield that brought up and they're like, Phil, the, the point man. I'm like, sweet. You know, you're like, is there any better thing at, uh, let's see, 2005, I was, 29 years old, you know, five-year cop full of piss and vinegar, getting ready to go do an entry on, you know, a barricaded subject. It was oh, like yeah. no better feeling, you know? And, and so I looked behind me and is my partner, Mike Dobson, another buddy of mine, um, Mike Hayes. And, uh, we put our earplugs in. I think, I, I think I saw them put earplugs in. I'm like, Oh, I don't have any earplugs. Like whatever, <laughs> like it's going in. Yeah, the next thing you know is boom. The 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 our Chuck Bridges and, and uh, his partner hung a door charge, an IV bag of water. And anybody out there knows what that means, but basically, it's an IV bag charged with water, uh, and it blows the door right off the engine. So boom, we blow off the door, and I'm first through the door, and man, I'm literally staring down the barrel of, I think it was a nine millimeter or something like that, like literally four feet from my face, um, and so. I shoot him four times with, I, I have the shield. So I shoot him four times with my handgun. Uh, my partner at the time, Jim Jeffries shoots him four times with his AR 15 right over my ear uh, that I didn't have earplugs in. Um, and then as he's leaning back, he fires off around and we didn't know if like he fired off around at us or if he was like trying to kill himself. But you know, after the dust settled, basically we go in there and clear everything out. I mean, it was a, it was a bloody mess, but long story short is, um, that incident of it itself, like, started bringing back these memories. I don't know why, other than maybe he was a child porn collector or that I just killed the guy or all of it combined with, like, these weird feelings of, like, I just took a dude's life. Like, yeah, you you think, okay, that POS deserves to die because he's, like, obviously out there trying to hurt children. Um, and not only try to kill you, I mean, he's pointing a gun and, in your face. And then, yeah, tried to kill me, or did he, like, was he messing with me? Like, did he, was it suicide by cop? Was it, was he going to kill me? You know, there's all these things that are triggering in your head. And then it's a joke, you know, they, they make you go see this police psychologist, and you're like, no, I'm fine, bro, I'm fine, I'm, I'm going to go back to work, and everything's going to be good. And I couldn't wait, because um, the next week we had another SWAT training, and there was one thing that I loved doing as a cop, 
and still to this day is SWAT training. Like it is like the one thing, the one day we do it once a month for, you know, and we'll talk about the uh, SWAT commander stuff later. It's like the one day where I feel like I'm a free police officer. Like that is the one day I get to go out and do some badass police work and learn how to do like the tactical stuff and become a tactician or forever tactician for those SWAT guys out there, or SWAT gals out there that want to be SWAT someday. It's liberating, man. And, and there's something liberating about being a SWAT member. And anyway, um, I couldn't wait to get back out on the SWAT team. And so, you know, they made me go through the whole rigmarole, like, oh, you need an attorney. I don't need an attorney. Like, I don't, uh, you know, and, and, and we talked about this. You know, we had a shooting the other couple weeks ago with, uh, or a couple months ago with a couple of my guys. And everybody's all, you know, worried about getting an attorney nowadays because of all the jazz that's going on in LA County, uh, DA's office. And, you know, they don't know if they're going to get fired or, worst prosecuted i'm like you know back in 2005 i didn't need an attorney i just wanted to get the story out i want to get the story to the investigators i want to go back i want to put my gun back in my holster i want my gun back because now i know it definitely works and you know i answered that call with the right way and i know we did it the right way and i'm going to be back talking so anyway long story short i'm pressuring the the ia sergeant at the time i get me in to see the psychologist so they send me to see the psychologist just like you know, it was, a, it was a, a police psychologist for the city. I don't even remember her name, but she's like, you good? I'm like, yeah, I'm good. She's like, any problems? Like, no. She's like, can you sleep? I'm like, yeah, sleep great. You know, totally full of shit, by the way. Like, <laughs> I can't sleep at all. And, you know, at that time it was like, you know, don't, don't disturb Phil, man. He's going through a really difficult time. So everybody just don't call him. Well, what happens when you do that? Nobody calls you. Yeah. You know? And so I was sitting there and, and my, my really two really good friends, um, who were married at the time, Mike and Katrina Hayes, who were calling me on nonstop. They're like my two friends. But this was like right when we set up the Critical Incident Stress Management Team. So it was called CISM or CHISM or whatever you want to call it. I love these acronyms. Yeah, you know, and, and so they were super cool because they were my friends, not because they were involved with this CHISM group at the time. But I didn't hear from anybody else. And then finally, like day two, Boomsher called me, you know, the SWAT sergeant, the, the baddest man on the planet. I still say that today. Uh, and he called to check in and that meant a lot. And then another buddy of mine, Mike Coakley called and that meant a lot. And, you know, the psychologist was useless, was totally useless. And so I got her to sign off on me being ready to rock and roll on Monday. I think she had like five, six questions for me and I was done. And then, you know, I was left with the rest of my career to deal with. And then, you know, Salon Meritage happened. And then like six years later, while being the, you know, on the operations commander, a buddy of mine killed his girlfriend and then killed himself. You know, he was a police captain for Los Alamitos right here. Jeez. And so like all these different things in life that start like developing different feelings in your world. Uh, but that one in particular in 2005 was what started bringing up the, the memories of, of being molested as a child. So wild stuff. Dude. Wild that's a, stuff. that's a crazy story. Um, was that, and I know I didn't want to really get go too far off, but was that the only shooting you've been in or been different? Another one. That was the only shooting that I had been involved with. Yeah. yeah, that's intense. And uh, the reason why I was asking you originally, I mean, I have now have a lot of questions about the shooting, but like the reason why I was asking you about it originally was I was curious, like when you started police work, if you um, already had that empathy for victims, like because you've gone through it, or if you re, if you kind of changed after the feelings started coming up. So like 2005 or 2006, whenever you started actually processing. Is that when you kind of started having more empathy towards uh, victims who had been in similar situations or was it the whole time? That's kind of what I was going with. And I was curious if it changed for you or if you even know. I don't know, man. I, I really don't know. I think, um, I think the best way to answer that question is to just be honest and say, I don't, I don't know if empathy is, is like innate 
or if it's learned, you know, and, and I'll tell you, uh, there, there's a, a phenomenal volunteer, uh, here at the police department and, um, He's an older guy, and 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 his his daughter was uh, raped and killed in uh, the late, I think, eighties or um, late nineties. And um, I don't want to say his name because I didn't tell him how to tell the story. But one of the things he said to me once was, "This was like three or four years ago." He goes, "You know, it's interesting, Phil is, um, and he's a God's man. Like he is all about God uh, and, and practices the Bible." nonstop and, and it's commendable because he really believes it. He's one of those guys. Anyway, I'll just call him, his name's Don. So I'll leave, I'll leave it at that. His name's Don. He comes in here and he says, you know what's interesting, Phil, is, and I started questioning because I'm Jewish and I have Jewish faith and I think my religion more uh, so culturally than I do religiously um, because I think it is a race. I think Judaism is a race and being Jewish is a race. And I do want to talk about that sometime, uh, if not today, another time about Judaism and how what's going on with the world and all the racism stuff. But he says to me, Phil, he says, you know, what's interesting about God is God feels you. God feels your pain. Uh, and everybody feels your pain. And I said, well, what do you mean everybody feels your pain? He goes, you know, it's weird. It's like, it's like this. When you, when you are in that foot pursuit, Phil, and uh, I'm with you, right? And I see you jump over that wall and you snap your knee, right? You snap your knee and it gives me chills. Why does it give me chills to see you snap your knee? Right. Or you see it on TV, right? Like you watch a football game or something, you see a guy blow his ankle out or pop his head and he's got a concussion. Like I was watching the Rams game the other day and I was texting with my city manager, like, wow, this guy got rocked from the Cardinals. He got rocked and he was out cold. I don't know the name of the player, but I felt it. Oh, yeah. This happened last night to me. I was watching a show and some girl, yeah, some, one of the girls in the show, her chest gets cracked. They're doing CPR on her and her chest, cra- like you hear the crack of her chest. Yeah. And I felt like felt it, it like a shiver through my like leg. I was like, oh, and I'm like, like oh, you feel it, yeah, for sure, yeah. I definitely know what you're talking about. Yeah, so I think that that to answer your question about how do you feel that is, I think you either you either have it or you don't. I mean, I don't have the right answer to that, but I thought it was really profound because I never thought of it like that. Like, why do why do I feel somebody else's pain? Is it because we're all connected? Is it because there's um, a natural spirit out there that? humans have is an innate human ability to empathize or feel with other people. And if you don't have that, that's scary, you know? And, and so um, to answer your question is, I don't know that I've always had it. I don't know that I've learned it, but it's definitely matured. You know what I mean? Like as I've gotten older, I've been able to mature more and be like, okay, if I tell this cop to get over his COVID symptoms and the sniffles and get his negative, get his COVID negative test back and come back to work, like a tough guy, like we did 22 years ago, it's not, it's, it's not going to have the same profound effect as if I call him and I say, Hey, do you need anything? Or right. um, do, does your family need anything? Is your wife okay? Are your children okay? You know what I mean? And oh, so yeah. 22 years ago, like you, you're brand new. I think you've been on 16 years. Even then it was like, we were tough guys, you know, Oh, this job is, you know, for the tough and, and the old and the weak won't make it. But you know, things, things have changed in this profession. And there's still a lot of that tough guyism. I mean, don't get me wrong. We're trying to trying to crack the walls of machismo here, but it's it's still there and it's still alive. And I think it's more so with the younger guys. As you get older, you start realizing. I don't know. I don't know if you start realizing when you get older that you're getting older and you get more emotional. But um, the little things don't seem to bother you so much, and you start to become a little bit more empathetic about, you know, 
the little things. So, I wonder if you would have had people checking on you after your shooting in a way where they were just like, Hey, like, Hey, do you need anything? Is there anything going on that I can do? Um, instead of distancing themselves, you know, what are that, what that could have done you know, earlier on. And then, like you said, like, as we get older, we're like, Hey, this is important. Check. I'm going to check on my people, especially in your position, like checking on your guys, I think is very important, but not doing it in a way where, um, it's forced because I think that comes across pretty obvious when you're feeling like, Oh, I have to do it because I'm the chief versus I really want to do this because I care. Yeah. I think that that's, I mean, for lack of a better cliche, you hit the nail right on the head. It's, I don't, I don't reach out to these guys cause I'm the chief and yeah, it's obligatory. You know, I, I genuinely care. Uh, maybe it's easier here because I only have 40 sworn guys and gals and another 30, I think 32, yeah, 32 professional staff. So I have 72 staff members here, but wow. you know, it's um, every single one of them. You know, we, we like to say we're family um, and that's tough for me to swallow because yeah, the family is like my three daughters and my wife and my father and my brother and, and my now adopted mom. Um, that's my family. But genuinely like here at the police department, this is my police department family. And I feel their pain when they're hurt. You know, and, and COVID's legit, man. Like I, my daughter had it a week ago. And man, you want to talk about tears, bro. I, I couldn't touch her for two days. And then finally I said, you know, screw it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hug my daughter. And we bawled like little babies with each other. Cause she's the, she's the baby, man. She's yeah. the most emotional and um, the most needed uh, child for affection out of all three of my daughters. And so we just held each other and I'm like, you know what? it's not worth it. Like if I get COVID, yeah, I'm immunodeficient. Yeah. I'm a severe asthmatic bronchial hot mess, but you know, at least I hugged my daughter when she needed it. So those are things like, those are feelings that you don't get to um, talk about when you wear this uniform for some reason. And that's what, what makes this job even more difficult is because we're expected to go, you know, deal with that hostage situation and put the bad guy in handcuffs and then just clean up the blood mess and expect us to move on to the next call for service, whether it's a barking dog or somebody who just, you know, had somebody shit on their lawn. I don't know. It's just, it's a difficult road. Oh yeah. I mean, you're expected to, to perform, you know, all the time and not, yeah, it, they take the human, human side of who you are out of it. It's just a uniform. And so I think that's yeah. kind of why we're doing this. You know, I want to bring the human side back into it. Love it. Man. Um, yeah. So you brought up something you want to talk about. I'm curious to hear, cause I don't think I've, I've haven't had this conversation at all with anybody. And uh, you asked me the other day, do you have, do you have friends who are of Jewish faith? And I'd say, yeah, I do have friends who are Jewish, but I don't know about like practicing Jewish faith. And uh, we kind of talked about it a little bit, but not in this, in this form. Yeah. Um, so you said that you said uh, Judaism is a race. What does that, what does that mean? Like, I don't, I'm completely curious here. Like, I don't, I've never heard that. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. Like I, I, I keep saying it's funny. I don't know why I keep saying it. Maybe it is funny. I was literally on a zoom call last night for the only elementary school we have in Seal Beach it's called McGaugh elementary school. And the principal is black. I'm Jewish. And we had a community member ask us about what we're dealing with racism in our community. Right. Um, and you've heard all the BLM stuff. You've heard all the, the other stuff that we've dealt with for police reform and um, being Jewish. Um, yes, it, it is a religion. And yes, we have a large amount of culture, but my wife, like we do DNA tests for us to find out what our background is and, and, hers comes back 98% Ashkenazi Jewish, right? Well, how is it that Ashkenazi Jewish? What is that, by the way? I don't know what that is. 
Oh, it's like Russian Polish Jewish, like oh, okay. coming back from from the Russian Poland eras, and um, you know, it's always it's always been this question about whether Judaism is a religion or a race, and it's one hundred percent both. You know, it's it's if if you're not born Jewish by blood, then yes, you can be a Jew. I mean, the nice part about being Jewish um, is that we accept all people, um, and and being Jewish is more about accepting. Um, and being a good person than it is, you know, loving thy God or the God or praying with us the way we pray or joining us in a synagogue versus um, reading the Old Testament. The only thing that's that's really fact for Jews that we can all agree on as Jews is that uh, the old the religion starts and stops with the Old Testament, right? I mean, that's really what Judaism is all about, right? And not that we don't believe anything in the new Testament. Like we believe that maybe that did happen. Maybe it didn't happen. We don't know, but what we do believe for sure, which actually is the same in Christianity is that the old Testament happened. Right. And, and I think that to dissect the old Testament, right. Did, did we experience all the same things or did they just experience newer things? And that's, those are the stories that are told, but long story is, you know, we we're talking about racism last night and it got me really thinking all night long, legitimately, these are the stupid things that, that keep uh, me and probably some other chiefs up all night long is that we never sleep. But aside from that, it's like, how do we as a society deal with racism? Uh, and more importantly, how do we as police officers deal with racism? Is it in our profession? Like, is there a big um, level of racism in law enforcement? I don't know. I mean, is it in every part of the society? Absolutely. Is it in every part of society, which then therefore makes it in every part of every career, which includes law enforcement? I would say probably, right? Is it this big, huge problem that we need to worry about in our profession? I don't know, but it's definitely something that we need to put our heads together and make sure it doesn't happen or, or uh, what's the other word, mastitize in our organizations. Right. Uh, it's, it's unacceptable. But what I wanted to talk about more importantly was, you know, there's a, a the Maga principal here, the principal of the elementary school is black, right? And he's a doctor of ethnic studies at USC. He's an extremely brilliant guy. And one of the things that he said that was really profound is like, if we stop in our society at racism, we failed everything, right? And, and it was so cool the way he said it. And I wish I could say it, but and maybe you should have him on. Uh, your what's best his, guy what's his name? Uh, his name is Dr. Isaac Gates, I-S-A-A-I-C. Gates, G-A-T-E-S, phenomenal guy. Anyway, so what he said was, it's like, if we stop at racism, we failed everything. Like, yes, racism is a problem. Uh, but what about uh, fat shaming? What about uh, bullying? What about um, special needs? What about uh, autistic kids? What about, what about autistic, autistic adults? Um, what about gender differences? What about gender biases? You know, there's so many different things in society that we need to deal with that I don't really know if law enforcement's um, role is that stuff, you know, what I would like to get back to, I think I told you about this is, is being law enforcement officers, right? Let's, let's stop focusing on racism being a police department problem yep. and, and make racism a societal problem that we should deal with as a society rather than just a police department. We do a really good job of, of a couple of different things. One, we do a really good job at writing tickets we do a really good job. Well, most of us do a really good job at shooting our guns and taking bad guys to jail. Right. Those three things alone are what I signed up to do in this job. In addition to that, we've added a bunch of different things. And I think you've, you've seen this list of mine before, but um, we've become step parents. We've become psychologists. We've become sociologists. We've become 
your doctor, we've become firemen, we've become medics, we've become uh, pencil writers, we've become report takers, we've become English teachers, you name it, we've become it as police officers. Is that fair? I would say, yeah. I mean, that's really, yeah, we signed up for shooting guns and writing tickets and arresting people. But I think we all knew that there were other duties as assigned, right? And then we get kind of lost in that. But I don't think those other duties as assigned were to fix societal issues as it relates to racism. And so I will do my best, and we were talking about this in that meeting last night, I will do my best to offer my advice, offer my opinion, offer everything I can to these parents. But, man, it comes down to them as parents. Man, I can't teach you how to raise your kid. I can't teach you uh, what to say to them at all times. That comes down to you and your responsibility as a parent to do that. Um, I forget one of, one of my cops too. This was the best thing in the world. I think he said it to a citizen the other day and right, wrong or indifferent. I totally supported him because this lady was yelling at him and screaming at him on body camera. He goes, look, you want me to come in here in 15 minutes and solve what took you 16 years to create. And I'm like, I've never heard it better said in my life. You know, like that is our expectation. We're expected to come in here and solve your parental problems in 15 minutes. It took you 16 years to create. Oh yeah. It's not our job. Our no. job is, you know, to help you and develop you into trying to raise better citizens in society. And I think what, what I was going to say about thinking about all night last night is to, to cap this, this topic off. As cops, what we can do better is instead of just arresting people, shooting guns and writing tickets, we need to like scratch down and become legitimate um, uh, child developers, right? So you go to our schools and, you know, I tell this story all the time. Like you go to, how many times have you gone to a restaurant, Adam, where it's like, as soon as you walk in in uniform, the parent says, oh, Johnny, you better shut up or I'm going to tell that cop to come over here and arrest you. Well, what yeah. does that do immediately? All the time. And it, you know what's funny is not, it's not even just people, random people. There are people that I know that are like, that'll be friends of mine or whoever, and they'll say that to their kids or uh, whatever, like whatever the relationship is that I know them. And I'm like, uh, no. I'm like, don't say, don't say that. I'm like, why are you, why are you putting that? on the police you're already putting a, a fear into that person about a kid about a police officer who yeah. when we're coming in here and it's like you can't you want to ask for stickers fine but don't tell him i'm going to take him to jail because he's not listening to you absolutely not you're putting fear now you're make, putting us as the bad guy automatically as a little as a little kid right so we need to be child we need to be we need to be better child developers as police officers and i know it's not the the badass cop stuff that you know we want to do but man, I'll tell you, like as, as stupid as it sounds, um, show you a picture later. Like we made baseball cards, um, and I'll, oh, here's one. We made baseball cards for our police officers. This one's of uh, our uh, police canine companion dog, uh, Yosa, who's a badass Labrador who basically responds to any victims who uh, we feel would be beneficial by sitting with a Labrador that kisses and does 35 different tricks. But that's you know, cool. Like those, yeah. We, we are really trying to develop our children because that's what parents really should be focusing on with law enforcement is call us when you need an emergency and call us when you need help teaching your children what it's like to meet a police officer and be safe when feeling or feel being safe when they're around them. And so we're trying to, trying to flip the script on, opinions of our children and that starts at such a young age. And so I have, you know, I have two cops. I'm not going to give my police department more plugs here, but you know, we have two cops assigned. That's all they do. They're community oriented policing officers and they go to our elementary school, you know, where there's pre-K all the way up to fifth grade and pass out baseball cards and run with the kids around the bases and 
that's it. Like they don't have any other um, duties and responsibilities for most time of the day during the school year. And then during the summer month, they ride a beach uh, patrol with a, a six wheeler Polaris and uh, mountain bikes. I mean, that's like that, that simple stuff, that simple step of handing out, I mean, I even have hand them out bubble gum and whatever, you know, whatever, just to get these kids to at least like us again. It starts them. Yeah, for sure. That age to think that the cops aren't going to arrest mommy or daddy all the time. Now, granted, we may have to, but at least that kid's not worried about it. So I think most police officers these days understand that role and are coming into it with that role of like community um, engagement and the ability to re- relate to people when they go out on in the field, even if they're not handling calls for service or they're if not arresting people, they're actually engaged in the community. I think people understand that role. I think it's frustrating. Like you said, when you're trying to do that and then um, the adult, the adults in the community are the ones who are actually counteracting that by saying the things that you said, like be scared of this person, be scared because he's a police officer. But yeah, I think, I think we understand. I think people are nowadays, especially understanding this role. And I, I think that more training on it is, is going to be imperative for all the future police officers. Yeah. Well, that was the uh, first part of a two part episode with, uh, Phil Gonchak, he, like I said, he goes by Phil and just uh, open, uh, able to talk, uh, easygoing guy. I uh, hope you enjoyed this first part. Uh, we broke it up in two sections. This is really his background, how he got to be a uh, chief of police. And uh, next week is going to be all about where Seal Beach is going and um, how he's taking care of his guys today. So like I said, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you are interested in any type of leadership building program, please check me out at sturgeonwellness.com. You can find me on Instagram at AP underscore Sturgeon or at, at Let's Grab a Cup. You can also find this at Let's Grab a Cup.com. We are now on YouTube. Uh, episode three was posted on YouTube last week. And uh, hopefully uh, when we get this one uh, wrapped up, we will post uh, episode four and five as one um, session on YouTube. Have a good day.